He's a retired police sergeant, retired from the Louisville Metro Police Department in Louisville, Kentucky. He was the supervisor on scene at the Brianna Taylor drug raid. He was shot on the raid. He's here to talk about the raid, the mistruths, and some would say flat-out lies perpetuated by the news media about what occurred that day and why. The impact on him, physical, mental, emotional, his family, and how it inspired him to write his book to help others. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. We are thrilled to partner with Shatterproof at FHE the world-renowned treatment program for first responders because, at times, helpers need help. Exclusive treatment services for first responders who may suffer from exposure to trauma, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and substance abuse. For free 24-7 information, call 833-776-1420. 833-776-1420. That's 833-776-1420 or online at FHEHealth.com. That's FHEHealth.com. Under programs, you'll find details about Shatterproof. Calling us from Kentucky, we have retired Police Sergeant John Mattingly on the phone. If his name sounds familiar, you're going to understand why. He was the sergeant that was shot on the Brianna Taylor raid. First of all, John, thanks for being a guest on the show and talking about this. Never easy. Yeah, John, I appreciate you having me. It's uh, great to have a platform to be able to get the truth out. And the thing is, you know, with police, and here's what happens. uh, And the, the situation with the Brianna Taylor raid, people can speculate all they want. I don't argue those things at all with people. Their, their reality is their perspective, whatever it is, and it's based off what they hear in the media. And we'll talk about that. But one thing they never hear from is when a cop is shot, what the news media will say is either they, they died or the injuries are not life-threatening, they will recover. And when they say that, the good news, they'll get better. They never talk about what happened afterwards. And that's a huge part of the story that's missing from the, the, the conversation. Yeah, John, it's a, it's a huge part of the the deal. That's most of the deal when you're talking about police shootings. And I've had the opportunity to talk to several guys around the nation who have been in similar incidents. And the tragedy is once you're done with the shooting and, and all the command staff makes their little parade to the hospital the first day, if it's somewhat controversial, you won't see or talk to them again. They distance themselves from you. They leave you on an island by yourself. And there's no guidebooks. There's no guidelines on how to deal with this stuff. And and so God's put us in a position. That's what we plan on doing from here on out is to help people that have been stuck in our position for after the fact of a shooting, uh, how to handle it. One of the things that I tend to say, and I, my wife really works, you got you to gotta filter it. A lot of these 
police command staff, especially police chiefs and commissioners, and they're politicians and they're politically motivated. They are like rats on a sinking ship. They're the first ones to abandon you when there's any kind of hint of controversy, even if you are 100% right of what you did. Oh, absolutely. And and my big push now is to, to encourage people. Uh, I know this won't take place overnight. It may not take place ever, but I'm, I so much... Uh, respect the sheriffs more than I do police chiefs. And there are some great chiefs out there. I don't, I don't want to lump them all together. But if you work for a liberal mayor in a liberal city, that chief is not a chief. They're simply a spokesperson, a front person for the agenda being pushed through the mayor's office. And the great thing about sheriffs is they're on a term. And if the people don't like what they're doing, they replace them. And unfortunately, with with these mayors, they have such authority in these cities that they're not held accountable for the people they put in place until it's election time for them. But if the city's so slanted in that way, then they're going to go party line and and it's a it's a waste of time to even fight. I would agree you 100 percent. The sheriffs, they tend to be the backbone of law enforcement and a term that you've been around for a while, but a term when I started policing that we didn't use we now call community policing. That was everyday policing. That was something that that we all did. And the reason it changed for a lot of people, they need to realize this, was the politicians that were elected, like, how do we do more with less and spend less? And they went to zones and other things, and it was less about, hey, having a cop or everybody knew their name. That didn't exist anymore, and that's why. Oh, absolutely. I remember when I came on, uh, you know, when you were on your beat, when you were in your patrol division and on your beat, buddy, these officers were beat territorial because they knew the people on their beat. They had relationships with them and they were doing, like you said, community already in police. And before that was even a, a term that somebody used to make a bunch of money off of and go around and teach classes because this is just humor, human interaction. You know, you go out and you talk to people because our whole goal is to make the community safer and to, to make it livable for our children and our grandchildren and so why in the world would we not go out and be part of the community that we police in? And when they start labeling things, and like you said, putting you in zones and, and changing the way that they're doing things because the guys at the top never were uh, the boots on the ground. They, di- they don't understand it. So they went to some course that they thought was great, and they started pushing these agendas, and it got us away from uh, being one of the community, and it turned us into being the police, period. And that's a bad stigma to have because – then the police are only talking to people on the worst days of their life. And so naturally that interaction with the police is not something memorable or enjoyable to them. One of the things I remember when I got my first post, that's what we called him Baltimore. And my sergeant at the time, uh, who's since passed away, he said, if I pull up here and I point to someone and I say, who is that? And you don't know who their, their, their name is, who their parents are, where they live. They're a good guy, a bad guy. You're not doing your job, and you're going to get a certain amount of X's, and then you're out. I'll put someone in here that will do the job. And that was the reality of it. People, and we got nicknames. They would say, well, we looked alike. We all had brown hair, blonde hair, mustache, where it might be. And my nicknames were Bigfoot because I wore a size 13 shoe. But that's when you knew you arrived, when people gave you a nickname, and they're like, "Uh uh-oh, here comes Bigfoot, here comes Officer Wiley, whatever it might be. Do you remember those days? Oh, yeah. I I remember those specifically. I remember that you would know the bad guys on the beat and they know you and you could talk to them even when they weren't doing something wrong. And there was that kind of mutual respect there as far as, okay, Jimbo, if I catch you breaking into cars again, you know what's going to happen or don't run from me next time because you know what happened last time. You know, you could have these 
these civil conversations with people and they didn't really hate you. They understood you had a job to do. And we understood that this is just a criminal element. So it was kind of like a cat and mouse game. But at the same time, since you knew them on a personal level, things were just different. So when things started to escalate, you were able to de-escalate them before that was, quote, a huge term that's being pushed now. Yeah, that was, we lived with de-escalation and no one taught us that. That was, you know who taught me that? The, the, the career cops who were ahead of me. Uh, the academy tried to teach you that, but it was the street cops. And I was trained by Vietnam combat veterans. And we had a few Korean War veterans who were commanders. And the big things they taught were respect everybody until they change the tone yeah. of the conversation. Always show That's respect and, and never back down. And be fair. Have integrity. These are things, as a sergeant, I preached to my people. I'm sure you did, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's not a hard way to live your life because we do that outside of the job. You don't go into a store to check out and just start cussing somebody or, you know, go in and take over areas. You go in and you're respectful because you want to be treated with respect. And that's the same way on the street. And I'll tell you what, uh, I've seen plenty of young officers who go out there with that chip on their shoulder because now in the Academy, all this stuff is pushed or, you know, they have Johnny bad training, training partner who wants to show them how tough he is. But then that first time they get hit in the nose because they failed to be a human being to somebody and, and de-escalate, it kind of changes their tune. They start thinking, man, there's got to be a better way to approach this. And if they would just teach that from the get-go, I've complained about that for years because rudeness has always been police's number one complaint. There's always been rudeness and speeding. At least that's what it was in Louisville. Those were the calls that would constantly come in. And so I was always like, well, how come in the academy, you know, we do all this stuff for 20 or 30 weeks in the academy and you run out of stuff to do and you get bored and they have you do more PT because there's nothing else to do. So why aren't they teaching you more interpersonal communication skills so you can come out and actually just talk to people? Because people are craving that. They need it in their life. Uh, they have horrible home backgrounds most of these people were dealing with. And if they just had somebody come to them with a little respect, it could change a lot of the, the interactions that go on on the street. It would go a long way. We are talking with retired police sergeant John Maddenley, retired from the Louisville Metro Police Department in Kentucky. Uh, he was shot on the Brianna Taylor raid. When we return, we're going to talk about that raid, the incident, how it impacted him, the physical, the mental, the emotional, and how he built his life after. This is the Law Enforcement Day Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. What makes Shatterproof a very unique program is it's one of the only programs in the country that first responders can go to that is 100% all first responders. Everybody's in pretty bad shape when they get here. And then 30 days later, when you can see the transformation and the difference in people when they've had 30 days uh, of counseling, working with therapists, working with a psychiatrist, getting the neuro treatment. The transformation that happens with the clients is really humbling to be able to work around and see because people are getting better here. And it just shows that there's a need for the first responder community to deal with behavioral health issues and take them seriously and offer treatment to people that may need help out there. For free 24-7 information, call 833-776-1420 or online at fhehealth.com. Flintstone Media has been the digital messaging bedrock of several brands and businesses, serving as a highly resourceful podcast production house and consultancy firm for over six years. Work with a leader in the industry and add a new podcast to your brand's content offerings. 
From show development and setup through recording and distribution, Jemmy will lend her experience launching dozens of podcasts and producing over a thousand episodes, making creating your show a simple and easy turnkey process for you. Visit FlintstoneMedia.com for podcast samples. That's FlintstoneMedia.com. Return conversation on the Law Enforcement Today show with retired police sergeant John Mattingly, retired from the Louisville Metro Police Department in Louisville, Kentucky. I know I'm not saying Louisville right, okay? I'm from uh, most of my close. life in Maryland and Baltimore, and I'm a Navy brat. And I've been everywhere, John, so uh, please forgive my not pronouncing it correctly. Uh, and by the way, uh, Dexter Pitts recommended you. He was on the show a long time. Great interview. And to be honest, Louisville is not a department you hear a whole lot about. It's a major department. And if it wasn't for, I recall, a couple line of duty deaths over the last uh, 10 years from Louisville, but if it wasn't for the Brianna Taylor raid, I think that's one of those departments and cities where people are like, yeah, it's not on the radar. They, they don't know it exists. Right. And they think it's uh, just well, anybody that thinks of Kentucky that doesn't live in Kentucky thinks, you know, hillbilly, no shoes, backwoods. And there's parts of Kentucky like that. Eastern Kentucky's got the hills that, you know, it's the hills with eyes, creepy stuff that I don't even want to go to. But um, where we live, it's it's just a normal populated city, a little over a million people. Uh, when I came on, once they merged departments, we were around 1,300 officers, which is still way short compared to other demographics and population size cities like ours. But not small, but not overwhelmingly huge. You know, there was a lot of opportunities to do a lot of different things in, in our career, and it was great. And we talked earlier, it started with boots on the ground, what we call community policing nowadays, which was everyday policing. Right. And you handled, if you're like my department, we handled everything. We we got called for absolutely everything, even stuff we couldn't do that weren't police business. We showed up, we gave them information, say, hey, maybe you can call this person, that company, this part of the city government, whatever it might be. Yeah, so you've got cops who make low pay, are supposed to be experts in 10 different fields. We're like Swiss Army Knives. You know, you come in, now you get calls for, hey, my kid won't get up for school. All right, well, why did you call me? <laughs> Whoop his tail and make him get up for school. That has nothing to do with police. But then you go in and they want you to be the enforcer on this kid. Now this kid hates the police. So there's a lot of different dynamics on the police departments now that I think is too much dumped on the police. I don't, I'm not for the social workers going and doing stuff. I think it's a disaster waiting to happen. But I do think there are some calls that simply – uh, departments or dispatch units could say this isn't a police matter and they could give them the information right there wouldn't waste resources wouldn't waste time and wouldn't cause negative interactions with the public absolutely correct and you said something in reference when we encounter people in police work usually it's their worst day they're either victim of crime they got a family dispute going on some sort of domestic problem or they're they've done something criminal and by the way a very important point you made We didn't arrest people all the time. And when we did, quite often, it was not violent. Even with career criminals, it wasn't always confrontational. It wasn't always adversarial. It was, hey, they know the game. They know the rules. And it wasn't a big deal. When it was violent, it was extremely violent. And I think I remember seeing Louisville a couple times being featured on a television series, First 48. Am I correct on that? Do you remember? Yes, you are. Yeah, they were on there for a few years. And one thing I don't associate with Louisville is homicides. How, how bad is a violent crime problem there? Well, the last two years, 
2020, we had 177, I believe, homicides. In 2021, we had 188, and this year we're on pace to break well over 200. And if you put that into perspective, we are more than two times, almost three times the homicide rate per capita as Chicago. So we beat them when it comes to how many people versus how many homicides. And we had over 800 shootings last year where people were were shot and injured. So it's not a nonviolent city. We've got... Now, it's a great city. You know, I'm not down in Louisville. We got a great music scene. We got great food scene. But we just got a huge criminal element because our court system is so liberal. I mean, it flows with the rest of the city, and it's just revolving doors for these criminals, and they know it. You know, you've got a guy who will have seven, eight, nine criminal circuit court cases pending where he's been locked up in the last few years on those crimes, out committing additional crimes because there's no harm to it. I get a few days lodged in jail, and I get out. And so they know this, and unfortunately, the citizens are, or fortunately, I should say, the citizens are finally catching on to that. And with me writing the book, that was one of my main goals is for the city to go, hey, wake up, guys. I know you think this is all, you know, la-la land and fun and roses with, with the, the stuff this mayor says and lies, but here's what's going on behind the curtain. Let's, pull, let's reveal it a little bit and, and let you decide for yourself if this is the city you want to raise your kids in. It's 12 seconds in the dark. Um, it's my what it is. It's my view of what happened that night and the events that followed. Gotcha. So it's 12 seconds in the dark. A police officer's firsthand account of the Brianna Taylor raid. A big part of your career in law enforcement, you gravitated towards working narcotics and violent crimes. And we're, there's a lot of similarities in our careers. I did patrol for a while. Then I went through what we called special operations, which was uh, like flex unit. Then district narcotics, then detailed the DEA, and then got promoted to sergeant and, and went back to uniform. A lot of what I did was motivated by the amount of violence I saw permeating neighborhoods, and most of it was based off of street drug gangs. Is, is that similar in Louisville? Oh, it's spot on. Uh, you can take almost every single crime that is committed, and the nexus that goes back to it is drug use, drug dealing from petty theft by the users to home invasions by other uh, dealers targeting other dealers to overdoses to carjackings. I mean, it all ties in and drugs are the nexus and it's a, it's a pandemic in this country. It's, it's worse than COVID could ever be. Yeah. And and they don't seem to get the the attention. Uh, The, I'll just go back on my day and we had, and we still do, Reports constantly from Mexico about uh, people being burned alive, tires put around their necks, set on fire, in acid drums, mass executions, all that. And I tell people, yeah, you may think of drugs as being a victimless crime, uh, for lack of better words. However, a part of the money you spend on that nickel bag, that dime bag, that gram, whatever it might be, goes and puts weapons in their hands. And if we didn't have the right. demand for it here, we wouldn't have so much violence your response to that? Oh, absolutely. And and what you talk about, you saw in your career back in or in Mexico, or the reports, those are in our cities now. There, the the cartel and mafia is so embedded in all these different uh, cities, and and especially what's really the the trend right now are these rural communities. You know, you look and you'll see the Trump flags everywhere, but then all of a sudden you see this brand new. Uh, Mexican restaurant pop up and you figure out and you'll go to where this guy is who owns this house is and he's living in a million dollar house on 40 acres buried back in and the business hardly does any business 
And so you dig a little deeper and you find out these guys are cartel connected from, from Mexico. And this is all over. This isn't, this isn't just for Kentucky. We've had, um, we've had these home invasions where people have been tied up and burned alive and tortured and it's all connected back to the cartel. And so that's happening in America and it's becoming more commonplace. And unfortunately the, the general public doesn't know this or doesn't see this. And so they feel safe. They feel okay. But once that gets even bigger than it is now, it's going to be revealed. And I think the cities and the people in the know are doing the general public a dis a huge uh, service by not disservice. Them. We're talking with retired police sergeant John Mattingly. You know his name from the Brianna Taylor raid in Louisville, Kentucky. We're going to talk about that. We'll talk about his book and much more. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. The Officer Down Memorial Podcast tells the real stories of the men and women we've lost in the line of duty. It is one of the darkest days in Itasca County's history. From the officers who were there. He's probably maybe one of the best investigators and a natural born one. And family and friends who were left behind. We try and get distance from people's tragedies, but the death of Beefy, it just shot home to all of us how permanent murder is. You can subscribe to the Officer Don Memorial Podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. Return conversation on the Law Enforcement Today show with retired Louisville Metro Police Sergeant John Mattingly. Uh, he is he was shot on the Brianna Taylor raid. He wrote the book Twelve Seconds in the Dark: A Police Officer's Firsthand Account of the Brianna Taylor Raid. Before we get into that, John, how are you doing physically after that? Uh, physically, pretty good. The leg is is fairly healed. I was able to, you know, have mobility on it fairly soon after two, three months. People don't know. A lot of people say, oh, he was shot in the leg or graze wound or, or most publications won't even mention that I was shot. They just say there's an altercation. Then we um, murdered Brianna Taylor and that drives me nuts. And I don't care to get notified or noticed, but I just want the whole story out there. So it did rip through my femoral artery. They did replace eight inches of it with a vein in my leg. So I've still got numbness in the leg. The knee is still very stiff. Uh, but God's been good, man. I can I can get around and, and do a lot of things. And you're not an old man. No, well, I don't know. I don't feel old. I'm 49, but I don't feel old. The reason I say that, when we think retired, a lot of times, and I, I got hurt and retired young. I got retired at the age of 33, and I've got multiple steel plates in my right hand, and most people don't see that. They don't know. And we'll talk about the mental part after in a moment. But they think, oh, when you retire from police work, you got to be like 65 or something like that. You're 49. And there's a reason why yeah. you retired, and it, it's the physical injuries, and then for words that I can't really come up with better words, you wind up getting dinged, and dinged emotionally and mentally quite a bit when you work police work, even if you haven't been through an act of violence like you went through. Would that be a fair assessment for you? Oh, absolutely. There's, there's, a, there's trauma layers, and while they may be thin, and one alone won't hurt you, as those build up, they get thicker and thicker, kind of like a rope, a little thread. You can snap it easier, but the more that get intertwined, it gets to the point where you can't break it and you can't do it yourself. And uh, that's a stigma with cops because we're all tough and type A and don't need help. But that, that does build up on people after a while. It does. And then how are you doing mentally and emotionally now? Man, I am. I'm, I feel good. Um, I'm positive. 
my wife and I did get in counseling afterwards and, and put our, our youngest son in counseling because, you know, even though I didn't feel like I needed it, I did. And, um, you know, we, there has been some times we've gone through stuff and my wife's have to point it out. And I want to say this, the main thing people don't understand, you know, we cops, we're, we're pretty callous to things. We deal with a lot. We see a lot so we can handle it. But what we forget about is our families as far as after these events, especially when the media is attacking you and social media and all this stuff, they get, they're not used to it. And they, they shut down, they hurt, they feel for you. And if, if I want the public to know that when you come at me, you're coming at my entire family and they wouldn't want that done to them. So, you know, that's just kind of a highlight that, that people don't pay attention to. Obviously, you've had a conversation with your family. There's parts of my story I don't talk about. And the reason why, John, is because it's not just my story. It's my ex-wife's story. She's the same last name. My wife today is the same last name. My daughters, my mom, my sisters. And they didn't do anything. They, I didn't do anything either, but they didn't sign up for this, just like your family didn't right. sign up for this. Yeah, it's a tragic part of it. And, and it's a sad part of it, unfortunately. Because they put us in, even even when I, I, I attempted to sue some people for all the defamation, uh, because, you know, somebody says, oh, he killed Brianna, whatever. But the saying we're going in, we were going to burn the house down and rob them and all the crazy stuff that came out. I'm like, how can they get away with saying that? There's no truth behind it. But unfortunately, the Supreme Court views cops as public figures, which blows my mind. Because if I'm a public figure, pay me like a public figure. We don't want to be in the limelight. We wanted to do our job and go home. You know, you put us here. So then we have no recourse to come after people. I went through the same thing and didn't have the ability to sue. I didn't have the ability to sue authors, anybody else, because you said you were a public official at the time and you're in the public eye. And as long as there's some sort of semblance of truth, hey, the event occurred, they can go wherever they want from that. Doesn't matter if it's accurate or not. Yeah, it's sad. And I'm sure you and your family were not prepared for that. The trauma of the raid, number one, I remember going on drug raids. And about the only time I would pray before doing my job, because usually didn't have the time to be fearful until afterwards, was knowing I was going to do a drug raid or something of that nature. Because you knew there's always potential for violence. So what I'd say is silent right. prayer, usually my patrol car. And we had certain things you're supposed to do. Did you have any indication prior to this raid that, that things could go south? Anything unusual no no we were told that you know it's a a single female in this house by herself um we didn't do the investigation on this we were basically hired help because they needed this was a very manpower intensive project and needed about 50 cops and so we were helping and the information we got the intel we got was she was there alone no dogs no kids no boyfriends so i wouldn't say our guard was let down but you're not going in with the same intensity of when you're getting ready to go through a door and you know on the other side, this guy has put on social media, I'm not going back to prison. I'll kill any cop that comes through. And you still got to, you know, you got to man up and do your job. Um, so this one was the same. We didn't change our tactics. They were still what we were supposed to do. Um, but I will say that that probably mentally there was a little bit of a drop. But when we got there, there was a car out front that wasn't there 10 minutes previously when I drove through to, to check the apartment. And so that raised some red flags for me. Um, because I didn't know where this person was. Now, they weren't the one in that apartment, but Kenneth Walker was in there, and we had no idea he was in there. So there are some different factors that come into play when you're doing these things that uh, you just can't take into account for. You said a very important thing. Your guard lets down a little bit, and one of the old sayings is complacency kills in police work. And 
we tend to, to view females as not threatening or not as threatening. And I get it right. 100%. I've been in brawls with females and, and we've heard of officers losing eyes and eyesight and being shot and stabbed by females. It happens, but it's awfully hard to get that mindset out. Oh, they're not a threat. Yeah, it's tough. And, and relaying that mindset or that, that not fear, but that caution to the public, they don't understand it. Because, yeah, I mean, we're taught, you know, as kids to be chivalrous and hold the door for women and be kind and, and don't hit them and all these things. But you know as well as I do in this police work, they don't look at you the same way. And they'll come attack you. And But I remember even on the street trying to control women who were attacking me. You do it more gently because you don't want to hurt them. I mean, that's not your goal. You just want to stop the threat and get them under control. So you do take a different approach with women, which I'm not, I don't know if it's right or wrong. I mean, that's a tough one to call. It's a real tough one. And as a sergeant, it's really tough because you want to tell the people, hey, don't let your guard down, do the right thing. But here's the, 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 the rough part about being a sergeant. You have to make sure they do their job the right way. And you have to make sure they're okay. I'm talking about the, the troops under you, men and women. So it's bouncing both sides of the fence. And it's not an easy one. And when you're a supervisor on a narcotics raid, again, the obligation is on you, at least it was for me, to make sure procedures are followed properly, law is followed properly, everything else is followed properly, and people didn't get out of hand with their emotions. I'm sure it was no different for you. No different. And that's one of the reasons I always like being the first one in the door. I know military-wise, the guy calling the shots is last so he can view everything and call it. Police work's a little bit different than military because we're not going in there to to totally clean out a whole room. Uh, We're going in there with a, a precise purpose and so i always like to be the first one through the door so i could assess and call off stuff as we're moving and um whether that's tactically correct or not i don't know but it always worked for me and on this day i was glad it was me that got shot not one of my guys because dealing with that would have been a lot tougher than me dealing with what i went through the emotional pain of having someone under you murdered killed injured is really really tough we'll talk about that more in a few moments we're talking with Retired Police Sergeant John Madden retired from the Louisville Metro Police Department in Louisville, Kentucky. He was the supervising police sergeant on the Brianna Taylor raid. He was shot on that raid. He's written a book, 12 Seconds in the Dark, a police officer's firsthand account of the Brianna Taylor raid. We're going to talk more about what happened, what his life is like afterwards, and more. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. place to be online is our facebook page do a search on facebook for law enforcement today radio show you'll get access to unique news articles editorials and so much more that's law enforcement today radio show on facebook have you ever wanted to listen to a favorite law enforcement today episode again or chat directly with john j wiley now you can Download Podopolo for free on either app store and send John J. Wiley a DM right on the app. That's P-O-D-O-P-O-L-O, Podopolo. This is our conversation on Law Enforcement Today's show with retired police sergeant John Madeline, retired from the Louisville Metro Police Department in Louisville, Kentucky. He was the supervising sergeant on the Brianna Taylor raid. He has written a book. He was shot on their raid. He's written a book, 12 Seconds in the Dark, a police officer's firsthand account of the Brianna Taylor raid. I, I know you've had this question posed to you, 
thousands of times. And I know if you're like me, you you second guess yourself. Could I have done things different? What should I have done different? That's how we get better at what we do. Were you shocked when you went through the door and all of a sudden gunfire erupted? I was shocked. Um, however, like I said, when we went up to the door, we were asked to give this female extra time than we normally do. Because generally you go up, you bang on the door. Supreme Court says you've got to give a reasonable amount of time, which has been uh, deemed to be five to 10 seconds after you knock and announce. And they said, can you give this one longer? Because we just want to get in there, collect documents, collect if there's any dope or money. And, you know, she's not the main focus for our investigation. She's just part of it. So when I saw that van, those spidey senses went off a little bit. But then when I was banging on the door and the longer it took, standing at that door for a minute seems like an eternity. In my mind, I'm going, man, we should have just done what we always do. I shouldn't have listened to an outsider asking me to do something different than my tactics are because I've been through over 2,000 doors and I've never waited this long. So it just started to feel weird. And then when the door came open, you know, I scanned from right to left from the part I could see without stepping in the doorway. But as soon as I stepped in the in, in the frame of the door, never even crossed the threshold, about 25, 30 feet down a dark hallway with ambient light coming from the bedroom, from the TV, I see two figures that are basically overlapping one another together. This is a super narrow hallway. She's a large girl. He's a He's a pretty tall, big guy. And they're crammed together. And all I see is his outreached hand with a gun, and boom, it was too late. So by the time my, my brain is registering all this crazy stuff like, well, this isn't normal. Why are two people there? Why aren't they running? Why aren't they giving up? Why aren't they doing things I normally see in these warrants? And then I see the gun, and it's too late. And I'm able to return four quick shots back. Um, this coward dives out of the way because it was a narrow hallway. He was only halfway in it. He disappears into the bedroom and leaves Brianna there. She attempted to follow him in the bedroom, and that's when she was struck by the bullets and, and dropped to the floor. And, um, you know, he keeps saying that, that he thought they were being home invaded, and I'm, and I'm thinking, well, why does a man bring his girlfriend to a hallway and stand in position waiting for that person to come through the door if you think you're getting home invaded? Why wouldn't you have her in the room calling 911? And second, why would you leave her hanging there once the, once you shot somebody and you dove out of the way to leave her, you know, to collect the collateral damage? So, you know, the, the fact that they said she was asleep in her bed was a lie. The fact they said we had the wrong apartment, uh, total lie. Her name, her apartment, her vehicle, all that was on there. The fact that, that Crump was saying that her boyfriend was already in custody from earlier that day total lie he was those raids were conducted at the exact same time and then um, the fact that that they said nothing was found in the apartment well that's true to some degree because the apartment wasn't searched after our public integrity came in and and collected the evidence from the shell casings and ballistics and the angles of the bullets and all that they left and we weren't the unit was not allowed to go back in and serve the search warrant our, our department shut that down and so the the way you look for bullets and evidence is a little different than the way you tear an apartment apartment apart for narcotics and money because they had it in so many ingenious ways. It's a totally different type of search. I didn't yeah. know most of what you said. And unfortunately, yeah, I'm retired police and I don't believe what I see in the media because I know quite often either they get it wrong by accident or they get it wrong on purpose. It doesn't really matter. It's still wrong. So when people ask me my opinion about certain things, I tell them I wasn't there. You were there. You saw what happened. Mm -hmm. And when you were shot, people can say it's a graze wound. They can say what they want. But you said earlier, your femoral artery was damaged. A lot of people bleed out and die from that. And they do it very quickly. Oh, yeah. You've got five to eight minutes. 
uh, if they don't get that, that cut off. And I remember hobbling out of that doorway in that breezeway where I could still hear uh, gunshots. And as I hobbled out and went to the ground, I was yelling for the guys out there, I need a tourniquet, give me a tourniquet. I've been hitting my femoral. And uh, the only reason I knew that is because we've had CPR training and, and first aid training, and, and we've been on hundreds of scenes where people have been shot. And you know when a, there's – you bleed a little bit when there's a through and through in the leg, but it's not a big bleed. And this one was just – I mean, I could feel it coming out when I had my hand over trying to stop it. You could feel the heat and the blood, you know, coming through your fingers. So I knew this was more than just a through and through, and I knew I had to get a tourniquet on it quick, so that was my first thought get this tourniquet on. And let me tell you, John, a tourniquet, I'd rather get shot again than have a tourniquet wrapped on my leg for 35 minutes. Uh, that was the most painful thing I've ever been through in my life. Yeah. It's got to uh, be uncomfortable to stop the blood. I, I don't know how people do it. Uh, and then once you, you get through the process of recovering yeah. physically, how long were you hospitalized? Surgery, rehab, all I was that stuff. hospitalized for three days. Uh, the surgery lasted about five hours. I was hospitalized for three days and they were like, as soon as you can get up and we can get you moving on your own with just a walker, we'll, we'll let you out. And I was like, that I'm going to, I'll grip my teeth in pain. I'm not staying in this hospital. And I got up and just did it. And um, they were kind of shocked, but I was like, I just want to go home. And so that's what I did. Unfortunately on the rehab stuff, we had some setbacks because COVID started on March 13th, same day or the shutdowns started on March 13th, the same day I was shot. And so I was able to go to a couple of in-person visits for rehab, and then it switched over to virtual rehab. And I'm like, I can do this without having them pay the bills, so I'll just do it on my own. And I was able to do that, and I thought I was going to rehab and go back to work. That was my goal. I told my wife, I said, I'm going back. The first thing I'm doing is going on another search warrant. This ain't going to beat me. Uh, but unfortunately, there was other plans for me. At what point did you become aware that the, the city – the police department, the media had gone after you and the other officers involved. It wasn't until mid-April because, like I said, COVID had taken over so much of TV and the news media. Um, you know, you had the president on every day. Everybody's governor, mayors were on every day giving their, their press conferences. And so I thought, good, we kind of escaped this because anytime there's a, a, a black suspect and a white officer involved shooting, I don't care what it is. It's critique, criticize. And that's the first thing we ask now, ever since uh, 2015, when they, when um, they went through that at Ferguson, you know, it's, and it's sad it's this way, but we go, was it a black or white person they shot? Oh, good. It's white. No big deal. And that sounds horrible because it should just be simply, was it a good shoot or bad shoot? So about mid April, after a Mott Aubrey thing happened, um, Ben Crump got on their case and he started, you know, blasting stuff nationwide. Well, one of her family's attorneys had worked with Ben Crump in the past. So they reached out to him. He came to Louisville. And as soon as he got here, started spreading even more lies. But the difference in his lies and the local attorney and family's lies was that he had that national platform and he had the, re the name recognition. And as soon as that took place, you could feel the whole tone of the city start to change. And that's when I started reaching out to people in power going, you've got to get this information out. You've got to put the truth out. Why are we sitting on this? This makes zero sense to me. And their answer to me was, we don't want to set uh, protocol for future cases. And I'm like, so you'd rather the city burn than to get out and tell the truth. That makes no sense to me. And um, so that started picking up steam and you could feel the tension and more people started coming out. And then George Floyd happened and all broke loose. Yeah. And, you know, they simply attached the two names together 
and you had the trifecta between Aubrey, Floyd, and Taylor, and um, things just went down from there. And when did you decide that you needed to tell your story book form? It was probably um, near the end of 2020. Um, I was so frustrated because we had a gag order on us. We couldn't talk. The city still to this day, 15 months or 25 months later, I'm sorry, 25 months later, still has not one time refuted any of the lies that are out there. There's evidence of the refusion of, of being able to refute it. They will not do it. I don't know why. I guess they put all their eggs in that one basket and, and their egos are too big to come out and tell the truth now. Well, the truth is, um, and I can say this, that they would rather someone else be the political scapegoat and either be fired, retired, or whatever, and say, hey, they're gone. We, we did our job. There's nothing else to be talked. Nothing to see here. Move along. Uh, so where yeah. can people get your book and get in contact with you? All right, the book you can get anywhere online that you can buy books. If you just want to type it in Google, it'll pop up. Amazon's the main one, obviously, but it's Target, Walmart, any of them. Um, if you want to go to in-stores, you can get it at Books A Million or Barnes & Noble. And as far as reaching me or contacting me, on all the social media platforms, it's just at Sergeant Mattingly, S-G-T-M-A-T-T-I-N-G-L-Y. And like I said, I've been able to use this platform now to help other officers in similar situations. And I'll tell you what, physically and and financially, some of these guys have it a lot worse than I have. Their stories aren't nationwide, so they haven't gotten the hate and the death threats. But, man, what these departments and cities put these guys through is it's just it's ungodly. John, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for being a guest on the show. It's all very much appreciated. And I forgot to say it earlier. Thank you for your service. That's appreciated as well. Thank you, too, sir. Appreciate you. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.